<laughs> Boom! What's up, everyone? <laughs> Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakian. Very excited to be talking about psychedelics, policy, and advocacy. We have Ismail Ali joining us on the show. Woo! <laughs> Thanks for coming on, brother. Absolutely, I'm very happy to be here. Super pumped, super yeah. pumped. And it was awesome meeting both you and Annie Oak at Mike Margulies' Psychedelic Seminars. Right. That was such a good uh, show by you two. And Annie just came on yesterday, you're here today. We're really excited. For those that don't know Ismail's background, he's a JD. He ha he's in Policy and Advocacy Council for MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. He was also chair and on the board of directors for Students for Sensible Drug Policy. And you can find MAPS's link below as well as SSDP's link below. And Izzy's Twitter as well. So, Ismail, let's talk about things from this big history perspective. We find ourselves as stewards of Earth. What is your current take <laughs> on the state of humanity? Um, I have a few thoughts, a few levels to, to the analysis I've got. But I will say that you know, using the steward framework, we've definitely um, maybe created some space between our understanding of what that role should be and what's actually going on. And I think that that like gap of our that gap that exists, that unwillingness that a lot of people have um, have had toward that role, has led to what feels like to a lot of people, and what seems to me perhaps like a crisis point of some kind. Um, I also see us in this time of extreme. Um, trans extremely rapid transition, but specifically around um, how we think about big questions around power and accountability. And I think that although a lot of people are thinking about um, the status of humanity with respect to how we handle uh, solving the problems that we see ahead of us, I actually see uh, the status much more based on how we decide to solve whatever problems that emerge. And I think looking at that process how we deal with power and accountability, how we deal with decision-making and governance. Those questions are, um, I think, developing with more uh, attention to detail than I've seen in a long time, and that I think uh, honestly gives me much more hope than just looking at the, the status of the outcomes in general. Like I, I think that if we're judging um, our species' role simply by where we're currently at, it's, it could be very easy to get very daunted very quickly. But I do see people who really, um, who are willing to step up in preparation for that shift. Um, and that gives me a lot of hope. So I guess to answer your question, the status of our whole species and this whole process, quite precarious but also quite inspired. And I think that's a good combination. Yes, yes. Yeah. I've, I really love how you phrased it as, we are here to be stewards of Earth and to each other, and yet there's a gap mm -hmm. of what's missing mm -hmm. from that to be at its optimal state. Mm -hmm. And so then it's kind of like, what, do we, what code do we need to update so that there's not that right. gap anymore? <laughs> yes. Right. And psychedelics and meditation, unit, feelings of unity mm -hmm. and oneness with each other mm -hmm. is seems to be at, in one of, if not the greatest uh, principle mm -hmm. of driving us towards that unity and that wholeness. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really glad that this is what you, what you identify as, as, as the state. Okay, now on the journey side of things. Who are you? How did you become where you're at today? So I'm still working on answering this question for myself, <laughs> but I'm gonna give you the most updated version that I've got. Um, <laughs> So I was actually, uh, I'm first generation 
uh, Muslim American, multi-religious, multi-ethnic, child of immigrants, uh, in some ways new to this uh, continent, to this part of the world, in a way that none of my ancestors have, have ever been before. So in many ways, um, I am uh, the, uh, one of the outcomes, one of the things that happens when we exist in this hyper-connected, globalized society. My parents, my father came from Pakistan, my mother from Colombia to Fresno, California in 1986, and that's where I was born, where I lived for many years until I moved up to Berkeley, California to, to pursue law school. But I grew up in Fresno around a very multicultural, multiracial, multireligious community. I was raised Muslim, but around a lot of people who identified with a lot of different faiths, did a lot of interfaith activism in like the post 9-11 era as a teenager, and spent a lot of my youth like really engaging with big questions around identity, mostly focusing on religious ones, but ultimately because of the way that politics and um, domestic and foreign policy shaped around me in, you know, in the post 9-11 era, that rapidly became an interest in um, civil rights and civil liberties and how uh, really the construction of freedom was uh, provided or, uh, I would say constructed, the construction of freedom was constructed um, by the US government and by these entities that were purportedly um, you know, operating to keep me and my family safe. But what I discovered over time was that uh, as I kind of really dove into my own identity as a Muslim American, as a child of immigrants, as someone who um, experienced a tremendous amount of privilege growing up, especially with respect to education and the communities that I was a part of, but also a lot of discrimination, I started to recognize that like a lot of these large questions around politics, around society, around culture, were not just academic ones, they were ones that you know, impacted my day-to-day -day life. So over the course of uh, my undergrad, I studied philosophy and creative writing. I really focused on um, kind of, I, I did a lot of speech and debate. I really focused on trying to understand the nature of the problems that I saw us facing, which at that time were really focused on discrimination, the military industrial complex, how we treat people in prisons, et cetera. And that kind of led to a much more kind of concrete understanding of how we did that internally, which led to the war on drugs. But before getting to that, I'll also say that um, this was all happening at the same time that I personally was interacting with a number of drug using communities, legal and illegal. And I think that being you know, a 15, 16 year old growing up in Fresno, California, seeing really the beginnings of what would eventually become the overdose uh, crisis in like 2006 to 2010 or so um, was where I actually like did a lot of my political education with respect to drugs. Like I had an idea and a construction of how um, a kind of domestic foreign policy was handled by the U.S. government and by other governments, but when it when it you know when it became super real and super tangible for me and my community, it was on the question of drugs, drug enforcement, and that's really where what led to me becoming interested in that as like a topic professionally. Uh, when I started law school, I had two goals. I was like, I'm either going to do inter international diplomacy of some kind where I'm like doing some sort of peace building work, yes. or I'm gonna do war on drugs work. Yeah. And ideally, it's gonna be both at the same time, yeah. but right now I decided to, to focus mostly on my work fo like around the war on drugs and around that particular topic. Which interestingly mm -hmm. leads to peace building at the same time, yes. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And it's also cool how you teach us about your journey at starting to piece together for those that are uh, that have been watching you and watching the work of MAPS that people like you have that right melting pot mm -hmm. of a sort of cultural upbringing Absolutely. where you're studying multiple religions, mm -hmm. studying multiple ways that people mm -hmm. interface with their communities mm -hmm. um, and their families. And so then it gives you, uh, and psychedelics as well, and, and, and using versus not using. Mm -hmm. So then 
now that you ended up doing, you know, going from Fresno to Berkeley mm -hmm. and doing your mm -hmm. doing law school there, um, what was your big these big milestones for you that you're like, mm -hmm. okay, drug reform, mm -hmm. the war on drugs. I'm watching this. How can I best be a part mm -hmm. of the reform? There are a few big ones. Um, I'll just share like two or three. So one, when I was 16 and I had my first mushroom experience, I think that that was like a major shift as like a you know teenager. Um, in an uncontrolled context, you know, like pre-clinical, pre-party, whatever. I wasn't, There's even, no going, I wasn't even going to parties yeah. yet. No, no, I wasn't even going to parties <laughs> yet. Like, this is just me and some friends. And I think um, as a teenager who was, who was fairly depressed, experiencing a lot of anxiety and a lot of just dissonance from being, you know, Muslim in the post-9-11 world in the United States, um, having that kind of internal shift from angst to curiosity, which was a major kind of gift I got from those yes. experiences, and then flashing forward up to, or kind of going up to um, when I was actually in law school, my second summer, I worked for the ACLU of Northern California in their San Francisco office, where I focused mostly on um, kind of decri decriminalization related issues and bail reform. And this was right before the, um, like th there has been lately a huge push around in the criminal justice reform world around bail reform and looking at prosecutorial discretion, these two major, major issues in criminal justice. And I was like working at the ACLU, I spent nine months there um, doing a little bit of work around that and really getting a taste of what drug policy work looked like because at that time the ACLU was working on the Blue Ribbon Commission, which is something they were doing with Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom at the time. And that was kind of like the one year long um, uh, prep, pre, preparatory conversation for the state of California to have before Prop 64 um, was put forward and then passed in 2016. So I was like kind of involved a bit in like the very early dialogue in the state of California around that. And then at the end of that, um, that time, so I guess in September, September, October 2015, I met Natalie Ginsburg, who is the current policy director at MAPS. And her and I met and started talking about the intersection of psychedelic healing, trauma, and the war on drugs, and we were like finishing each other's sentences. We it. were like on it, and as soon as that happened, um, we started scheming up ways to work together. And the way I ended up at MAPS was actually that I um, developed and submitted a fellowship application to Berkeley Law School. So they granted me a public interest fellowship. So Berkeley Law School funded my first year of working with MAPS. That's they great. paid for my first That's year, so and then great. MAPS hired me officially after I did a year-long fellowship there. So it kind of transitioned from criminal justice um, very narrowly within the state of California context, but obviously connected to these much larger yes. national issues. Yes. Um, and then that kind of evolved into me realizing, you know, Natalie and I realizing that MAPS was at a position that was going to be central to this question of how the legal, regulatory, cultural context of the use of psychedelics would develop. And specifically, that questions around uh, these issues were no longer theoretical. Like, we were at a point now, at the end of 2015, that the questions were, become, were, were becoming basically more and more tangible. And now, you know, flash forward almost four years later, we're at a point where, like, we've got a timeline. Like, this stuff needs to be figured out within the next few years. So, like, when we're thinking more tangibly about, you know, some of the topics we'll get into later, about, like, what to do, how to build this system, yes. um, a lot of that involved bringing in understanding of criminal justice reform and civil rights and how we relate to psychedelics and sacred plant medicine practices and all of these things, all of which were things that I, was, I had some experience with at some point, and, I, and it just kind of worked out where I was like, where I, you know, we all realized at the same time that someone needed to do something, and I was like, okay, well, let's, let's see what we can do together, and kind of went from there. 
even back to what bail reform, yeah. know, even back to this very just simple mm -hmm. thing of, mm -hmm. of when you get jailed for cannabis, you're jailed for Absolutely. psychedelics. And, and it's like, how can we help make this process much more easy and seamless right. and, and not less friction and all this type right. of stuff. Um, and so that even all the way back to that and fast forward, like you said, four years and, and the conversations that you're having with Natalie about what exactly mm -hmm. needs to be done mm -hmm. with this sacred plant medicines, with the actual reforms of legislation um, and with countries around the world. Totally. Um, how can we catalyze the spiritual uh, transcending that we need to, to totally. so, so much to, ha to happen? Totally. And it's cool that you also had uh, your work with um, Students for Sensible mm -hmm. Drug Policy, mm -hmm. SSDP. It's an international network of students dedicated to ending the war on drugs mm -hmm. and you gave you you gave us the example of your work with ACLU mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. so and you know Ron just showed this mm -hmm. asset also with um, with the, this was at the United Nations mm -hmm. the war on drugs destroys lives so yeah so teach us about you know this sort of part of things yeah so students for sensible drug, drug policy was founded 21 I want to say 21 years ago we just had a 20th anniversary um, and it was originally a bunch of students who were organizing around the idea that if you had a uh, criminal conviction on your record that you were not able to receive student loan grants, which meant that people who had been incarcerated were prevented from receiving grants or loans from the federal government in order to attend school, effectively making it impossible for people who had been incarcerated to achieve an education. And that was kind of like the central, one of the central organizing issues yeah. at that point. Over, over the last 20 years, it's expanded to include things like Good Samaritan policies, so like when people overdose or when something goes wrong, um, a university, uh, you know, students organize to get universities to promise that they won't prosecute people or won't bring in law enforcement in situations where, you know, some, some health crisis emerges. Um, of course, lots of things around cannabis legalization and other kinds of regulatory issues or kind of legal issues. So Students for Central Drug Policy has really just been one of the vehicles through which this particular population, students first in the United States and now increasingly around the world, I think we're operating in almost 30 countries now, awesome. um, are, are organizing around, uh, po po like I said, originally policies that mostly impacted students and are now expanding beyond that to really, um, to really look at uh, kind of policies that impact young people in general. And um, really trying to make, you know, although there's like the actual direct organizing around the war on drugs element, it's also the case that for many young people, drug-related is drug related issues are like the first thing that they care about or one of the first things that really is a political issue. Um, and from my perspective as someone who's really trying to encourage like mass-scale civic engagement, to me it doesn't really matter necessarily what it is that gets you interested in politics as long as you're engaging with the system in some way just to make sure that your voice is being heard. And if that's drugs, then great, you know, all the better. Um, it was for me, like, you know, if it wasn't for it was kind of actually kind of simultaneous. If it wasn't for you know the criminalization of my communities as a Muslim person that was getting like surveilled, I, I don't even know if I would have cared about politics till I was much older. If it wasn't for drugs, also, so it was like all these topics were coming up at the same time when I was a teenager. I didn't actually discover SSDP till I was in law school, um, and then I ended up um, running the chapter with two other amazing colleagues of mine, um, Rachel and Ben, who uh, were both also in law school with me at the time, and we basically. Uh, helped develop the conversation, especially at that time at UC Berkeley um, and in California around um, equity issues that we'll talk about in a bit as well, but equity issues in cannabis about like what it means to um, be able to make money off of something that for so long was used to criminalize and harm people. 
And that was something that we talked to, that we did an event about in like March of 2016, even before Prop 64 was passed. Yeah. So really trying to bring attention to these big issues that we knew were going to come up. Um, and I think we might have been the first group to do an event about psilocybin mushrooms at the UC Berkeley Law Campus, which was something I was really proud of that we were really proud of. Um, and at that time, that was well before we were thinking about legalization. That was really just about educating lawyers about like, you know, drug policy related issues as it related to psychedelics. Um, but the organization has really done a lot and like, you know, there's, we'll see more, but there's yeah. a, um, let's there, pull that, let's pull yeah, that one a, up. There's so a photo of a bunch of us. Civil Society at the yes, United Nations. Yes, Youth Civil Society at the United Nations. So this is like a bunch of, this is actually in 2000, um, I want to say 2008, so probably just over a year ago. Ten, um, there are 2018 or 2018? 2018, excuse yeah, yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, 2018. This yeah. is me in a suit looking uh, really square at the bottom. But um, this is at the <laughs> UN. Like, there's a whole coalition of young activists that go, that go to the United Nations every year and engage with the Commission on Narcotic Drugs, um, which is basically the global COP convention. It's where all the law enforcement agencies from all over the world gather to develop to develop the strategy, to align it with, uh, with the international goals. And yeah, there's just a huge group of um, kind of like young activists and advocates that, that uh, participate in this process by engaging with that. And I, I'm lucky to participate in that group through MAPS, but this, this includes groups like Students for Sensible Drug Policy, um, Yoda, Youth Organize, Youth Organize Against Drug Action or something like that. Mm -hmm. There's a few orgs that are kind of from all over, SSTP Canada and Australia. There's a few orgs from all over that are really, really active. Um, that do that. It's pretty amazing. Wow, this is so cool learning about all of this from you, even at the scale of being able to come in and talk at the United Nations mm -hmm. about it. You said SSDP's in 30? Uh, I think so, countries. something like that. 20 something, 20 high number, yeah. It's, yeah. That's also really cool to start seeing it seep into the sensible policies now for, Absolutely. for drugs seep into um, reform around the world um, because like you said a lot of young people get engaged when they you know they're maybe they're smoking some cannabis or whatever totally. it may be when they're young and all of a sudden their friend goes to jail for it and they're like what is this what are they in jail for you know or they or they're trying to have you know they they feel oneness when they're on psilocybin right. or lsd yeah. or what have you and then and then all of a sudden they're going to jail and they're mm. like why is this thing that's delivering feelings of oneness also making me go to jail this is some like yep. yeah they notice that there's some sort of dissonance and it's funny it's like dare so when you a lot of That's my generation right. went through dare yeah we did where you've got like the the doobies with the big googly eyes that are like telling you about how cannabis is like the worst thing um and it's funny because i remember vividly as soon as young people realized that the doobie was lying to them about how bad weed is they start questioning what they were what the what the meth pipe was asking them you know like and like not to be dramatic but it's true like once like when the government or when some sort of, any sort of authority that's supposed to be looking out for our health and safety loses its credibility by lying to the face of young people about the actual effects of some of these drugs, then there's no real reason for that young person to continue to believe that entity for anything, much less other ones that try to issue the same kind of authority. It's a trust building thing. And yes, like, yes. if you can't build trust with young people who are way smarter and way more thoughtful and way more critical than you think they are, you know, random government agency or person or teacher, whoever it is, um, then then you're the one that's right. going to get get punked. You know, because like they're smart. The, the young people yeah. that I work with, the young people that I that I surround myself with in the community are absolutely brilliant people who really care about humanity, really care about what we're doing with each other and with these substances. And and at least if there was that tiny bit of nuance, <laughs> sure, they're, yeah. they're like this catalyzes 
really powerful feelings of oneness, but at the same time, doing it a lot can potentially sure, lead to yeah. like decreases in your productivity sure, or whatever sure. it may be. Yeah, 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 some sort of balance. Where was the nuance? Yeah, yeah there wasn't no nuance. Balance. Correct, it yeah. was all bad. Yeah, the doobie Correct. is gonna kill you. Okay, yeah, no, yeah. Won't. Moderation is key. <laughs> so, and there's another image, Ronnie, the International Drug Policy Reform. So this is a conference that yeah. brings together people from around the world who believe that the war on drugs must end. And this is coming up November 6th through 9th in 2019 in St. Louis, Missouri, the International Drug Policy Reform Conference. Yeah, I'm a huge uh, fan of Drug Policy Alliance, which is the organization that puts this on. Um, this is, like I said, like it says, a biannual conference. Um, I really appreciate this particular conference because it's one of the places where uh, a huge number, like you know, 2,500 or so, 2,500 attendees from literally all over the world, drug, who are drug policy activists from all over the world, doing everything from direct service harm reduction with IV drug users to people who are thinking about like psychedelic medical regulation to people who are thinking about access to buprenorphine and uh, medicaid-assisted treatment in prisons from, to, you know, like every single yeah. spectrum you can imagine that involves the war on drugs is being discussed cool. here. And I have a particularly special place in my heart for it because it's the first place where I actually got a platform to speak and it was um, in 2015, actually, I was still a student. I was working with SSDP, and this amazing activist and advocate named Amanda Ryman, who um, was in the social work department at Berkeley. She was a professor there. She networks for a company called Flocana, but um, she was helping uh, DPA put together. She was actually working at DPA right now at that time as well. Um, and she put me on a panel about, uh, I think it was called Beyond Prohibition. It was in 2015, and it was like, what does the future Beyond Prohibition look like? And it was really special because I was like the radical youth voice in the midst of like all these kind of like older, very well-published academics who were talking about drug policy. And that was in 2015, and since then, I've really like continued to develop that particular strain of thought, focusing on what do we do when prohibition ends, because so much of the yes. work that the Drug Policy Alliance, the SSDP, that these orgs do is about ending the war on drugs, and there's lots to talk about there, there's lots to do there. And I think that there needs to be simultaneously a good amount of energy put toward to what the next system is going to look like. And this isn't just true with drug policy. This is true with energy. This is true with healthcare. This is true with housing. Like we need major paradigm shifts in all these sectors. And yes. I think mental health care and how we deal with consciousness is one of those places where, Correct. as we start to dismantle the limitations, the things that we've been kind of um, uh, handed, maybe as as defaults, which may not be true, or that may not be uh, cover the full picture, or may not be accurate. Um, how to respond to those with some sort of generative vision for whatever happens next. And I think that a lot of that visioning regarding the drug policy movement happens here. I'm really, uh, I'm a big fan. I'm really excited for this year, yeah. Yeah, this is a public health, a mental health issue around the world, Absolutely. integrating trauma, building on, uh, on, these on these psychedelic experiences that can catalyze these feelings of oneness. And also you mentioned it's paradigm shifts in not only the public health, it's paradigm shifts in, in, in what's happening with, with, um, with education in general, with healthcare in general, um, with uh, restoring humanity in general, all these types of, of, of paradigm shifts. And, and I'm also really happy that you know when you when you speak about it, you're also giving us this this insight into how it's there's some issues that this is touching. People are touching from uh, that are involved in, in prisons and jails mm -hmm. um, with this type of well, how this reform mm -hmm. affects that, mm -hmm. or how this reform impacts um, uh, trauma, the people experiencing mm -hmm. trauma and psychedelic psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. So there's all different mm -hmm. angles mm -hmm. that that this is around the world. What is going to happen mm -hmm. post? 
uh, the war on drugs mm -hmm. ending? How do we integrate that peacefully into mm -hmm. the social fabric? And in a way, like you said, a cannabis mm -hmm. company that's now you know selling cannabis. Mm -hmm. uh, what about all of the decades of people that mm -hmm. that were involved in blood, sweat, and tears? Mm -hmm. And um, how can we and freedom? <laughs> if, yeah. How can we adequately? Um, distribute yeah. um, the, the, the rewards. Yeah, um, yeah correct. This yeah. is a big, big question, and it's one that I think um, needs to be answered by a collective and in the collective. And that's actually probably a good place to start because when we're thinking about the benefits that come out of an industry or of a movement or of um, any sort of organized um, kind of, uh, kind of, uh, collection of and distribution of resources, however that looks like. Um, one of the pieces that absolutely needs to be considered with respect to drugs in particular is, as you said, really identifying and repairing the harms from prohibition. And there's a few ways to look at that. Some of them include the obvious ones, like people who've been incarcerated and looking at how much has been lost in communities and for individual people, but of course for all the, also for their whole communities with respect to that. But there's also kind of a secondary level of what it means to have um, perpetuated the system of criminalizing uh, really behavior that's entirely about oneself and that so closely implicates questions around trauma and mental health care and has loaded so much stigma into the, um, the kind of whole field of engaging with one's own mind in a liberated way. So that's much deeper, that's, that's much deeper and much harder to track than uh, how we have uh, physically restricted people's liberty. Both are critical, but if you look at the scope of time, I mean, the Catholic Church was genociding the indigenous user, users of plant medicine practice in Central America 500 years ago. So there is a direct tie between the genocide of these cultural practices that empower groups of people to fight oppression, to develop resistance, to develop cultural context for use and accountability in those contexts, and today's system of incarceration. There's a link there. Wow. And that is based in stigma, that's based in racism, that's based in these systems of oppression. Um, so when we're looking at what the harm is, like the first step for me is a clear accountability of what the harm actually is. Like we can look at, and I really am so in awe of a lot of the cannabis activists that are fighting for equity right now in the industry because they're looking at, um, they're literally trying to put a dollar amount on the amount of years people are spending in prison for nonviolent drug offenses. Yeah. And they're like, how, do we, how does the US government pay that back? Yes. Like people talk about reparations for slavery and reparations yeah. for past harm. And like a lot of the time those conversations get really scaled really quickly and they frighten a lot of people who don't understand how to have a conversation about yeah, yeah. historical harm and how to make yeah. that difference. What's happening now in the cannabis world, and like this is j just one example, is actually looking at like for example, and this is, it's interesting because this ties to the question of bail reform, like back to that original topic. We've criminalized poverty for for, for decades in this country. We've criminalized not having the money to post bail, mm. which means that there are a number of people who have paid a ton of money to jails and prison systems and various government systems who are, have done that in a context 
of unjust laws that we now know have harmed those people. Yeah. How do you get those people that money back? That's very interesting. How do you get those? Because that's quantifiable. That's, that's not quantifiable. like, that's not like how did my generational ancestry, no, no, no. Yeah. That's like, and by the way, I also think that there should be reparations for the ancestral stuff too. Totally. But putting that conversation, that's a bigger conversation. Putting that aside for now, looking very like much around this particular topic. That's a very grounded, numerical, yeah. quantitative yeah. amount yeah. right away. Yeah. 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 And it's not, and again, it's not like, this is not my idea. This is something, excuse me, this is not my idea. This is something that's come from like these cannabis activists that are like, how do we repair those harms? Very tangibly. So looking at that from like a psychedelic perspective, looking at psychedelics and what it means to not have had access to these practices, it's more than just... Um, people should have access to psych psychedelic therapy legally. It's um, what are the, how do we quantify the mental health impacts of living in the world that we're currently living in and yes. how much of that has been impacted by incarceration, by the criminal legal system, by all these things. Like these are massive, massive, massive questions. They're not easy ones. But when we're talking about what it, what it means to return or like not even return to, let's say, birth or create a just world, like all of these historical elements need to be encountered and acknowledged before we can actually try to think about what this new system is building, that we're building is. Because if we build that system without acknowledging for that, that stuff, then we're not actually building a new system, we're just building on top of the old one. That's not gonna work. Someone's gonna try to dismantle that too. It was crazy hearing you speak about this from a perspective of so enlightening for me when you, when you speak about it, like think about how much the our inaccessibility, the unaccessibility that we have to the to the substances, the Mother Earth secretion mm -hmm. of these substances, mm -hmm. that because we have not had the right access and and and, and psychotherapy systems with those, mm -hmm. that how much has that caused so much addition, mm -hmm. uh, unnecessary uh, mental health issues, unnecessary war, unnecessary. Mm -hmm. um, uh, 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 the the social fabric mm -hmm. it has more tears in it because yeah. we didn't do that. I love um, that take on it because then you can really start thinking about it like um, where where did the you know where did this war even come from in the first place mm -hmm. and um, why have the elders for thousands mm -hmm. of years been been practicing mm -hmm. with this but mm -hmm. all of a sudden in the modern world it's not mm -hmm. it's not allowed. Mm -hmm. Our next um, images slowly bring us into your you know your speaking. Mm -hmm. Um, maps. Mm -hmm. So it's been three years for you, over three years now with maps. Mm. Um, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies developing and implementing policy and advocacy strategies to support access to psychedelics for mm -hmm. medical, legal, and cultural mm -hmm. use. And this was after your conversation with Natalie right. that you guys were right. like finishing each other's sentences. Yeah. You knew this is what you wanted to do. This is you speaking in Colombia. Yeah, so this is actually in Colombia at um, an event called Semana Psychoactiva, Psychoactive Week, which was organized by uh, this amazing harm reduction organization in, out of Bogota called Acción Técnica Social, Social Technical Action, ATS. Um, and they, it was actually the 10th anniversary. And this organization is actually quite amazing because they just published with some other orgs, uh, just actually was at this conference about a year ago. They published a plan, like their, you know, a, a plan with recommendations of how to bring cocaine entirely out of the underground market um, into a legal regulated market, a global market. And the, you know, these are Colombian activists that are looking at the, the coke problem in, co cocaine problem in Colombia and they're like, this is our solution. It's really, really like huge work that has a, tr you know, tremendous implications on global drug policy. I was there because I was, I was getting a chance to um, discuss a study that we were actually moving forward Forward that we're just now starting to move forward with there, um, which kind of ties a lot of the questions you kind of brought up all, all together, actually. So um, part of my role at MAPS is to, as you said, like develop and implement these legal and policy strategies, which is just a fancy way of saying trying to um, predict and build capacity for this post-prohibition world. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. on a practical level, it means a lot of different things, but 
Um, that, for one, means having a lot of dialogues and conversations with people from a lot of different sectors of, sectors of society, from um, the government to various sectors of the government to uh, professionals in various sectors to the public to these various entities. So here, um, there was actually, so this is in, in Bogota, Colombia, this, uh, this event. It was attended by a number of members of the Colombian military and the, the Colombian drug policy kind of uh, administration. Um, as well as members of the Colombian Narcotics Control Board, and of course a lot of members of civil society and people who are just interested in drug policy in general. And I was there to talk about the possibility of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, um, specifically the possibility of doing a study, a phase two study in Colombia, looking at the efficacy of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD in Colombia. And as um, you know, uh, that's the kind of the flagship project that MAPS has been focusing on for the last decade and a half or so, a couple decades. Awarded um, breakthrough status from the FDA. Awarded breakthrough status from FDA um, and a special uh, purpose or special engagement letter. Um, I can't remember exactly what the term is, but we have we've engaged with FDA, have ex experienced a lot of support from them. That's really going forward as smoothly as possible. We're in phase three right now yes. um, with the intention of and, and kind of expectation of approving MDMA f as a for use in therapy um, for PTSD by 2021, which is really, really exciting. And Rick was also um, teaching us on the show about mm -hmm. the importance of the clinical trial design yes. and how that can then be applied to studying all different other styles of, of psychotherapy. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So we've actually, we're actually adapting the MDMA for PTSD protocol now with um, cognitive behavioral therapy and with exposure therapy and with other, other um, indications. So not just PTSD, but also we've st studied social anxiety for adults with autism. We've we're, we're developing a protocol right now around eating disorders, um, end of life anxiety. So there's a lot of like ways that the medical use, the medical therapeutic framework is actually developing. And here we were talking about doing an MDMA for PTSD open label um, kind of pilot study in Colombia with people who had experienced PTSD from different sides of the, of the civil war in Colombia, which was a 52 long civil war, which was truced two years ago. Unfortunately, there's complications to the truce and we'll see if that holds up. A 52, 52 year civil, civil war. war, yeah, from with with parties from the it was like the far left guerrilla, the far right paramilitaries, and then the government, and there was a con there was like ongoing kind of violence, and like that was that was exacerbated by not even necessarily caused by but exacerbated by the cartel violence. Totally. So it's like it was a whole vortex, and that's my personal like family context, like that's where my mom and her, her family came from. Yeah. So uh, being back in Colombia in 2018 to talk about the possibility of doing MDMA for PTSD research on people who had survived the civil war there was quite impactful and that really is an example of like you know there i was i was there to describe the study but i wasn't just describing the study for the public you know we had members of the colombian military and drug control scheme there like we are trying to communicate with these regulatory bodies with these government agencies so they understand that when we're talking about decriminalization or legalization of these drugs we're talking about it in a really intentional context we're talking about it in a way that's really thoughtful um, because i don't want to scare someone who could otherwise be a supporter by letting them think that this is not something that people are really, really mindful about. And that's kind of like the core, maybe guiding principle of a lot of the work that I do as a policy advocate at MAPS. A lot of it really just has to do with helping people bring more awareness to what they think they want and help us as a society develop more robustly the dialogue that we're having so we can mature into, a, mature into the infrastructure that we need to have yes. so we can actually have safe and legal access. Yes. I believe in the possibility and the importance of like legal regulated access for a lot of these substances. And I think that if we just like legalize some stuff tomorrow, 
some it would be there would be some major challenges we'd have to major obstacles and challenges we'd have to deal with. Yes. So I think part of, it's not just about creating the legal framework. It's all about, it's also about developing society and culture into a place where it's ready to in, engage with that framework. And that's really the core of a lot of the work that I'm doing. Because you gave this crazy example of Colombia yeah. having 50 years of civil war and yeah. also having to try and deal with cocaine and exactly yeah. you know, this is crazy <laughs> for that and then you know all of all of um, like what, what what do we exactly do with you know in the United States so the next the next asset shows you guys at the in, with the United States Congress mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. when you know you can you can teach us about this I just want to also mention just how like crazy it is that you know the United States is having its own issue with drug policy and drug reform and Absolutely. reparations and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Then you have other places like Portugal, which we'll get to in a little bit, mm -hmm. and what advances they've made in the mm -hmm. Netherlands, etc. There's all this crazy, how do you, like you said, on the community level, on the reform yeah. level? Yeah. Well, one of the, this is actually a great segue because um, one of the ways to do that, I think, is to really stay connected with and in dialogue with the community of people who are going to be impacted by policy change. So a lot of policy change happens in like the very heady ivory tower level because most people who are involved in policy change come from very elite circles and it's kind of like a revolving door of generations of people who are making most of the rules most of the time. A lot of that's changed with social media and a lot of interesting shifts toward populism. Um, and that, in general, has meant that people are learning how to develop more political power and agency in the current like political context, which includes one that brings in social media. So this is actually a great photo because this is um, at, so there's an organization called the Minority Cannabis Business Association. Mm -hmm. And um, I've participated in this. They, they, they've been in policy summits for the last four years. I participated in, I think, three out of four of them or two out of four of them, um, mostly creating model language and model ideas for what policy change at the municipal um, state and uh, federal level would look like to, in a way that includes equity and justice provision. So like expungement of offenses, yes. like creating a community fund where the taxes from this drug, from, from cannabis sales go to so they can benefit communities that were impacted by the war on drugs, whether or not they have a dispensary in that community. You know, it's like really broad yes. facing. And of course, things like priority licensing and things along those lines as well. So the Minority Cannabis Business Association is really doing a lot of work to develop the, the dialogue around equity in the cannabis industry. And this is with Representative or uh, Earl Blumenauer from Oregon. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Rep. Barbara Lee was also a supporter. Um, this is us taught, uh, kind of just presenting um, the model state legislation and actually preparing for lobbying on the Hill around the States Act and around the Marijuana Justice Act and really talking about what does it mean to include equity at the uh, in the conversation at the federal legal level, because so far yeah. it's all been about like state patchwork. Massachusetts is trying some stuff. Oakland is trying some stuff. SF, you know, there's a lot of entities and cities and states that are trying some equity provisions, but it's new. It's, people are still learning how to do it. There's a lot of failure, um, but a lot of progress. And I think that over the next few years, we'll see a really robust conversation develop around that topic. And um, going back to your question, like, how to stay connected. So much of this stuff around equity, a lot of this comes out of being in dialogue with communities that are impacted. And so similarly, like going back and forth from like the UN to SSDP conference to like, you know, being on the Hill and speaking with reps and, and doing all this, so much of it is just, for me personally, like what am I like doing here? What am I, like what's the actual like outcome? I, I'm, I have this incredible, incredible, incredible privilege to have this amazing education, to be in the room in a lot of these really, really interesting places where all of these cutting edge conversations are happening. Um, I just, you know, in addition to being uh, as accountable as I can be to the community people that I'm working with and my own personal community, the other thing is how, like how do I, is ensuring that I remember that 
part of the privilege and part of the opportunity that I have is to like continue to act clearly as a channel for the yes. people who are most impacted, who are going to yes. be the most impacted, because until, <laughs> because until that. until you know, people like the ones in this photo are actually making more decisions about what yeah. policy looks like, we're going to keep in the in the hamster wheel of, yeah. um, or no, actually, it's like the, it's like a combination between the hamster wheel and whack a mole. I don't even know what that looks like, it's but it's puppet, like little puppets. Yeah, yeah, we're just yeah. like we're like whacking moles that are like not going anywhere. I don't know. There's some metaphor in there somewhere, but it's like we, to do like really deep structural change. On an empowerment and engagement exactly. level with those that are exactly. most um, uh, disengaged exactly. currently. Exactly. Yeah. It's really about people are, and that can be disengaged because they're like privileged Caucasian students on college campuses who care about drugs and don't care about anything else. Like, fine, like, let's take them and like, let's get them to care about this Good stuff. Point. Or it could be people who have been disenfranchised because they've been forced to because they were incarcerated yeah, yeah. and they're black or brown and they're in jail and they're also not accessing. So, you know, there's different reasons that people don't access the system. And at this point, it's like, get people yeah. talking about the system because then at least we have, at least once we have a little bit more clarity around what's actually there, yeah. we can have a mature conversation about what to do next instead of all of this hysteria and yes. fear and obfuscation. What an, what an interesting way to plant the seed by saying that in the, all the, you're trying to get in all these United States states that are going through the reform process, how do you, you know, make a, a, make a piece of the tax revenue go towards a community mm -hmm. fund, right? These are mm -hmm. such cool mm -hmm. lines of code that can get mm -hmm. placed in, but it requires people to go out and and speak on this and get the um, Congress involved in the transform transformative processes totally. that are so needed. That's so very, very beautifully um, put. What are what is the code that we're gonna update um, at post-war on drugs? Mm -hmm. what are, how are we gonna write that code? Mm -hmm. The next image is with Rick. Oh yeah, with Rick Doblin. Yeah. Where were you guys in this photo? This is at Washington D.C. Okay, this is in Washington D.C. at Catharsis. That's Ryan from the Zendo. That's Rick, myself, and actually that's Natalie next to me. And this great, strange person with a um, <laughs> the blue clown nose. The blue clown nose <laughs> right behind Natalie. So this is at, in Washington D.C. right after um, an event called Catharsis on the Mall. Okay. So Catharsis on the Mall is a now essentially a regional burn. So it's like part of like the Burning Man network, and it was. Um, it, it's not quite like an official regional, but it's basically, it's a um, visual, an occupation, a party, a celebration. It's a three-day event that occurs on the Washington Mall in between the Washington Monument and the White House, like Crazy. on that, in that yeah. big grassroots area. They've been doing it since 2015. <laughs> Um, like a mini burn. Like a mini burn, literally a three day long yeah. mini burn in, that happens right, right there, there right there in the middle yeah. of it. And it was actually first done um, at that first conference that I was talking about, at drug policy reform um, at the International Reform Conference in 2015, focusing on the trauma of the war on drugs. So they brought speakers to talk about yes, people yes. who've been impacted by the war on drugs. And we're talking like American people who've been incarcerated, and we're talking about like moms who lost their, ch their children at Ayotzinapa, which was like the 52 Mexican kids whose bus disappeared. You know, like, like we're talking real harm, real harm, and like what that really looks like. And 52 Mexican kids? Yeah, so in 2015, a bus full of 52 Mexican children was disappeared in Ayotzinapa, and the Mexican government essentially failed to do any sort of investigation until many, many, many days later, like over a month later. And um, Did they find them? No, I, or, or they, they I actually don't remember, honestly. That's how like effed up this whole world is that I can't even remember the end of that. You're working story. on a lot of others. Um, I yeah. think I, I want to say that they did, and I'm certain it was not a happy ending. Um, it was. Uh, I'm, I'm almost certain that this was like a horrific situation. I'm like, I'm literally apologizing to you and the audience for not remembering this fact because it's like it was so tragic and like. Um, is so tragic that it happened, but uh, at, at the time, like that was really one of the big issues that was drawing attention to Mexico's response on the drug war, um, and how the Mexican government was responding to very real, real issue and threats. So, 
two um, women who had children who were lost actually came up for that event, that first catharsis, and they spoke. It was a vigil. It was a vigil for those who had been lost to the war on drugs. Um, and that has, has evolved into an event. And every morning after the last day, on Sunday morning after the last day, and they do a big like burn, like a temple burn, just like they would at Burning Man, where people write you know, about the war on drugs or about these different themes. This year, the theme is our mothership, you know, looking at the earth and our relationship to the earth. Um, but afterward, they, they do a huge parade. We literally do like a proper parade around like the whole area yeah. with Burning Man art cars and like like hundreds of people all costumed. It's like a little bit absurd. It's actually a lot absurd. Um, but it, it's it's like, you know, if this is what gets this particular yeah. demographic riled up about politics, then like let's get them riled up about, about, about what it is. Because it impacts them and it impacts people that are less privileged than they are. And if they're advocating for people that are less privileged than them as well as people in their own position and we're you know moving the conversation in the right direction, then like again, I'll take the voices. We need them. Yeah, yeah. So that that particular photo was the night was the morning after. We had just literally we had probably that was like a year or two ago. So we had probably just um, Trump was in office, and we had probably just maybe, maybe um, yelled a couple things toward the White House at that point in time, and then continued our, our yeah, walk, exactly. <laughs> our, our march. <laughs> and you know, when when you're speaking about also on a on a drug and policy uh, reform level, um, it also seems as though the there are so many other pressing variables. You've been speaking about it on a huge melting pot of variables, and that's been very educational. One of the pieces that you know this next image shows us is the cannabis that you're using mm. currently for the for running uh, like PTSD for veterans, um, for all different types of psychotherapy. But it's crazy that there's a monopoly on the cannabis from so from the University of Mississippi yeah I'd be happy to talk about this for a bit so this is uh, this is the cannabis that's grown by the it's actually it's grown at the University University of Mississippi but the uh, it's the National Institute of Drug Abuse that runs the lab and yeah so we do clinical FDA approved research with various substances including cannabis and one of the main obstacles that we've had has actually been to um, get the drug product that we can use uh, for these trials and we have had to rely on the source of cannabis that is created that right now only comes out of this NIDA lab. Um, there are a lot of uh, opinions about the use of that cannabis uh, and like whether or not it's effective or uh, whether or not it's like the right product to be using in this context. But regardless, we cannot use it for our phase three trials because we cannot. We have to be able to use um, the same. Uh, substance in the phase three trials as whatever goes to get approved, and we can't approve NIDA's experimental cannabis for phase three, or, or our FDA won't approve that for phase three, and we can't sell it on the market after approval. So right now we're in this kind of limbo where our, our clinical research with cannabis is actually more challenging than the work we do with MDMA. Because meanwhile, the, Israel's all like, "Yo, yeah, here's yeah. sixty cents a gram for some uh, the best oh, cannabis yeah. in the world." Oh yeah, yeah. Israel and, and um, Canada and possibly India, possibly Colombia. There's a lot of a lot of countries that are going to start developing medical strains of cannabis and extracts. And I'm um, although there's you know a little bit of concern about what that like will practically look like. Ultimately speaking, it means that there will be more medicines that are created out of the substance and. It, what we've been committed to is actually allowing the, the bud to stay whole and actually doing smoked or vaporized full plant bud to enjoy, to get benefit from what's called the entourage effect of yeah, the whole yeah, substance. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
and uh, FDA has never put a smoked product through through FDA before, so there's a lot of things that make that challenging. That it's, challenging yeah, it, yeah. it's quite complicated. Too much red tape can inhibit um, some of the yeah. global innovations that want to happen. So. Totally, and like I mean, uh, these other countries are going to just race ahead of the U.S. as far as uh, drug development and medical development goes. That's just like until the U.S. changes its policies in that respect and actually allows licenses to be granted, which the DEA has already permitted. They're just not doing it. So as soon as they actually like you know the, the the attorney general, you know, bar signs off on these applications so they can start moving forward. Then we'll have potential source. We're working with someone at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, who's a cool. botany professor who wants to grow for research. You know, that's great. Yeah, yes. yeah. So, so we're, we're we'll see what happens with that. But that is a that monopoly, that government monopoly on, on the night of cannabis has happened has been going on for fifty years. Um, I've personally five zero. Been, five zero. Yeah. I have personally been working on it only for about the last two and a half. So. Um, yeah, see, we'll these, see this, this is another one of those variables that's put into the equation. Not only um, does it depend on the government's uh, red tape uh, because they're trying to do it in a healthy, short, um, healthy for the people, but at the same time, where's the sourcing of right. the drugs coming from? Oh, who's got monopolies on this stuff? Uh, what are their intentions? You know, all right. this, yeah, this, all this type of things. Just, just give you an example of how much of a vortex this all is. So Insys Pharmaceuticals, I-N-S-Y-S, Insys Pharmaceuticals, which is the primary manufacturer or fentanyl in the United States. Yeah. Um, uh, is first off, they're currently getting um, dealing with a lot of lawsuits um, from the U.S. government, which I believe is going after them on a criminal on criminal grounds. Um, but they're being caught up in the lawsuits with uh, in the same way that Purdue Pharma is for like. Uh, basically obfuscating the knowledge that they had about the addictiveness of Oxycontin. Yeah, yeah. So you, you remember all those like lawsuits that happened to the tobacco companies that when, when regulators found out that the tobacco companies knew that tobacco caused lung cancer for like 10 years before they mm -hmm, told anyone, mm -hmm. they like started suing them and pulling millions and millions and millions of dollars about, this, about these companies. I predict that that's, about to, that's what's about to happen with some of these big opioid companies because there's a lot of evidence that these opioid companies like actively marketed Toward doctors, actively bribed doctors, actively like did all these things that made it e much easier for problematic for people to develop or a huge have have like problematic problematic le levels of prescribing. So anyway, that's all happening in the opioid world right now. I'm so glad that in, you taught us about that. Incest Pharma, yeah. Incest Pharmaceuticals, Incest, the maker yeah. of, fe of fentanyl, yeah, fentanyl, just put five hundred thousand dollars to fight. Uh, the legalization of adult use cannabis in Arizona in 2016. Wow. Arizona lost. It was one of the only states that year. I think it was like the only one that year that lost. Put half a million dollars to fighting it. Insys Pharmaceuticals is also pursuing a contract with the U.S. government to be the creator of synthetic THC and cannabis uh, for drug development. So we're talking no. like some really, really no. like twisted stuff, right? Like. Like we're we're out here like this like like scraggly nonprofit that's like we just want to like grow cannabis to like so we can have doobies for veterans and the, yeah. these guys are like we want to make one one keep yeah. it illegal yeah and we want to develop it into pharmaceutical drugs that like are going to be able to be we want out, so. our monopoly and we want to qu uh, quell in this area this yeah. is bad this, this is, is bad. very this bad. Is bad so tying yeah. it all together tying yeah. it all to what you were yeah. talking about earlier on equity and how to be fair like yeah. I really have a question about how do we capture the progress of science, of research, of therapy, of all these things, uh, of the money that's going to be, that's going to come out of some of these products, like which is for better or worse inevitable. How do we capture that and how do we put as much of that into the commons as possible? That's, right. that's where like community that's right. funds come in, that's where redistribution of healthcare assets comes in, like that's where I think we need to be thinking about how to actually build 
um, infrastructure. This is that's why it's literally all together. It's like how do we build infrastructure so when money starts coming in, when these paradigms start to shift, that we are not only keeping in mind these most impacted people, but we're actually actively helping them in a really tangible way. I would love for one day that. Uh, to see like the VA or like large state departments of health or like even better a universal healthcare system in the United States cover psychedelic therapy as part of its treatment plan because it's seen as that essential for people. I don't think that the cost should be borne by, by individual people. Of course it's going to happen and of course insurance will have to cover a certain amount um, in the US at least but ultimately we're talking about like with MDMA, it's a little bit different because there isn't the same cultural context. It's much more like a traditional medication. But when you're talking about something like mushrooms, when you're talking about psilocybin and mushrooms, which we have clear evidence have been used by cultures all over the world, all over the world, everywhere. It's like psilocybin as a molecule is kind yeah. of everyone's cultural patrimony. That's right, yeah. Um, you know, we also have clear evidence that uh, governments all across the world are terribly corrupt. And this is looking also true. For their yeah. own <laughs> interest. I just want to throw also that in true. there. You it's know, you true. ask how we're going to get from this point A to point B, and it needs to be a, a complete collapse of the way we've been thinking for uh, thousands of years. A Updating the mental map to, totally. new, to the new mental map. Couple, mm -hmm. couple thoughts. The f the fun for the commons is fascinating. I agree with that. That seems to be um, one of the best ways moving forward. We talk about that with artificial intelligence and robotics. Totally. Well, why don't we talk about what that with psychedelics? Yeah, we're talking as about well. universal basic income already. Yeah, yeah, like, and universal basic assets. There's yeah. all different ways to look at it. So how can ownership of the psychedelics Dogs that awaken us towards unity also, yes, incentivize those that um, provide a lot of the innovation, the sure. scientists, sure, but also at the same time distribute uh, some of the um, rewards to especially elders and those that are most disenfranchised, mm -hmm. all that stuff. Um, I love that fun for the commons um, notion. Um, some of the last thoughts on the way out, I want you to explain mm -hmm. to us about um, the, 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 the head in Portugal, his name's Joao. Joao. Jao. And so here, here you are um, with Liana, um, with Mike, and who's the fourth Marisa, one? Marisa. Marisa, who's also a filmmaker, actually. She's a documentary filmmaker. Cool. Cool. So, yeah. This, so teach mm -hmm. us about this, because he was one of the ones that helped bring the complete oh, there's Mike. war. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The complete war, war on drugs in Portugal to an end. And then now what, but now what's the question is, how, how did that happen? And also, what does it look like now? Because this is one of the right. big principles of yours, is how to make it healthy. Right. Transition. So this is a really illustrative. So this is actually right after Boom Festival 2018, where a few of us went to go visit Joel. Um, and just like learn a bit from him about what happened in Portugal. And um, Portugal decriminalized all drugs, possession and use of all drugs about 17 years ago and instituted uh, kind of at the same time a public health framework that allowed people to get access to treatment um, and other kinds of resources. There's, uh, so, so Portugal has now been operating in a decriminalized public health uh, focused framework for about um, 15 years. And uh, Joao was one of the people that was instrumental in making that happen. So we went to go meet with him and to just get an idea of where Portugal is at now, 15 years later, and what to do next. Because um, whether or not Portugal-style decriminalization is the best model for everywhere remains to be seen. That's going to be a play that's going to be a question that I think is going to be dependent on a lot of different factors. But some of the basic premises that are that are uh, kind of illustrated here um, in that system are really helpful. So. One of those is a complete reduction or elimination of criminal penalties for the use or possession of drugs. So that means that people do not get incarcerated and like the, in an ideal situation, they're not, um, in, they're not really engaging with the criminal legal system at all. 
if they're simply like using possess or possessing the substances. Um, generally speaking, there's really low levels of enforcement. It's not perfect. There's definitely some um, like bias, uh, as there is in pretty much any policing system, especially around poverty. So it's certainly the case that there's more kind of there 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 that there are structural kind of socioeconomic issues that are also at play there. But from a structural perspective, the reality is that. Um, because they've decriminalized, because they've instituted the simultaneous public health framework, they're looking at a massive reduction in um, HIV, AIDS um, infections, overdoses, yeah, um, people yeah. who are dealing with really chaotic drug use, because they have some sort of, of like, um, they have some sort of infrastructure that allows people who are experiencing, having challenging experiences with drugs to actually be responded to with care, with like social workers or therapists. I don't, um, we, you know, like I said, it, it's, successful in some aspects and, other, and, and less so in others, but ultimately it's a model where we can look at what other, per, other, par, excuse me, other paradigms of prohibition or non-prohibition would look like. So kind of like just to, to bring it all together, you know, thinking about the future, so much of that begins with making sure that people are not being criminalized for, their, for what they put into their own bodies. Like right now, like I can drink bleach and no one's gonna stop me. Like I can like show up to a hospital like on bleach and like they're gonna, what are they gonna do? They're gonna like pump my stomach and try to save my life, right? Like I can give you a poisonous mushroom. Like you can pick a poisonous mushroom and eat it and then die. Like that's not illegal. Me picking a mushroom like that's growing naturally in, the for, in, the, in a park, like in the state of Oregon, the state of Washington, like could get a gun pointed at me and to get me five years, right? That's happening to, to Paul Corbett, who's fighting a case in the state of Washington right now. So like there are, there are ways to start that process to make it you know, more like, even if you don't fully shift into a public health framework, I would say a more compassionate, less punitive framework, at least. And Portugal's, like, again, not ideal, but like a good place to start with like what that could look like. And there's other countries, um, Spain has fully decriminalized, um, or has decriminalized drugs. Czech Republic as well. Mm. Um, there's a few other contexts in different countries, like Colombia has decriminalized personal use quite a bit. Um, but I think as far as the U.S. goes, like, we are so reliant, um, kind of our whole criminal legal system is so reliant on incarcerating, um, you know, uh, incarcerating, excuse me, so reliant on incarcerating people who've committed nonviolent crimes yeah, yeah. Um, that we have this huge, 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 huge overpopulation of people who are in prison, yeah. um, many of which who are just poor who can't afford their bail, yeah. many of which who have literally just possessed something that was illegal. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, like this comes back to like, what does it mean to reckon with that reality, to acknowledge that reality, and to think about that reality when we're doing the fun stuff, which is creating the new world, like you said earlier. Yes, like, yes, yes. Yeah, we like, collapse the whole thing, like absolutely, yes, yeah, it's really not just about collapse. something in our human element that just needs to die, go away. It's What's gonna... the new map, the new code? One of, one of the things yeah. that you, you know, you're giving us this really interesting example, there's places in, in, in around the world where elders are using um, psychedelic substances absolutely. every single day with yeah. different people that are coming in. Right. There's another place in the world where you pick a mushroom in a park yeah. and you get a gun <laughs> pointed at you and you yeah. go for five years. And there's other places. These are all basically permutations. Yeah. They're little experiments happening. Yeah. Portugal, yeah. Spain, etc. These little experiments. And so we want to know what is the best code that maximizes our own uh, psychotherapeutic mm -hmm. processes mm -hmm. um, of integrating traumas and for moving forward as, as one, as a planet. And also um, what is most equitable for those that are mm -hmm. disenfranchised, mm -hmm. for reparations, mm -hmm. for distributing mm -hmm. um, the monetary and the sort, sort of commons. This has been such a fascinating conversation and synthesis um, Izzy thank you so much absolutely I, I want I want you to um, uh, answer a couple questions that we usually ask our guests on sure. the way out of that sure, episode. sure, sure. Um, the first question that we like asking our guests is 
Uh, are we alone in the cosmos? Ooh, I love that question. No, absolutely not. It also depends on what you mean by alone <laughs> um, and what you mean by the cosmos. But uh, no, I don't think we're alone in the cosmos. I think that there are definitely other entities, um, whether or not they're physical material ones that we can interact with or ones that ex ex exist entirely on energetic or spiritual planes, I'm not sure. But I'm very sure that we are not alone here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't feel well, alone here. We'll, we'll have to spend more <laughs> of the time on the next episode talking about those energetic and spiritual uh, planes. Yes, yeah, yes, that, that underlies the whole, my whole framework. We'll go into that <laughs> We'll go into that sure. next time. I love it. I love it. Okay, the next question is, are we in a simulation? Oh, this is, oh yeah, this one. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> you know, I go back and forth on this, but I don't think so. I don't think so because, um, you know, going to even your question earlier, like, what is the ideal framework? I, um, at this point, I still believe that it doesn't exist. I still believe that we're coding as we go. Uh, that doesn't mean it's not a simulation, but that means that at the very least that there's some sort of interactivity. And that's enough of an answer to that question that, that for me to be satisfied. Yeah. 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 Okay. And then <laughs> our, our last question is what is the most beautiful thing in the world? Mm. Such a good question. What is the most beautiful thing in the world? The most beautiful thing in the world is not a thing. Um, so I just learned that when you grow a plant, uh, especially a fruiting plant, um, in your proximity, that over time, the plant starts to read your DNA just by being in proximity, like the plant, plants adjust. Like these plants have started to b learn about interviewing skills and, I hope so. and technical direction. I certainly hope so. Um, but fruiting plants, they start to develop uh, trackers to understand the DNA of the people that are around them. And over time, they actually uh, start to create more of the nutrients uh, that the person who, whose DNA or that the DNA that they're picking up of is missing. So plants over time develop a symbiotic relationship with the people that are growing them. And over time, when a person grows like a lemon tree, mm -hmm. those lemons are over time going to be perfectly suited to this person's DNA just by being in proximity with them. Interesting. And that has to do with a lot of different factors, but plants are able to kind of like show up for us when we don't even know that we need that kind of nutritional support and I think that's really really beautiful I don't know if it's the most beautiful thing in the world but I think the ability of like nature and humans and each other to um, really show up in the face of scarcity and harm and fear and like something missing um, that gap that we we're talking about at the very beginning of this conversation um, and the willingness of, of not just people but of nature of the universe of maybe the simulation to fill that gap you know maybe not as fast as we would like it to happen but yeah, yeah, at yeah. some point yeah. Um, there's something really beautiful about like the ultimate unity of that. Correct. Um, yeah. of the ultimate balance. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Ah, thank you so much as well. Thank you for coming <laughs> on to the show. This has been such a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for teaching us about all your work. I'm so grateful. Thank you for the opportunity to speak. Also, you asked great questions. This is, this is a blast to be interviewed. So thank you to you, to you all. Huge thank you. Huge yeah. shout out to Ron Vargas yeah. for yeah. producing and yeah. directing. Next we love level. you very Next much. Level. Thank incredible. you. Incredible. Thank you. Thank you. So glad to hear that. We'll have to do a little like maps. Uh, Roundtable discussion. Yeah. Maybe we get Liana and Mike Margulies Absolutely. or something in here. That would be Absolutely. a lot of fun. We can talk about this. Um, and also, 
just on a psychedelics policy and advocacy level. It's time to distribute these thoughts across the world faster mm -hmm. in our communities. For everyone that tuned into mm -hmm. the conversation, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Get talking in your communities. Mm -hmm. Co comment below mm -hmm. with what your thoughts were on the episode. Share, share, share more of the conversations about this around the world. Mm -hmm. In your families, at work, online. Let's get sharing and talking about this more. Go help MAPS below, maps.org. The link is below, support MAPS, support SSDP as well, the Students yeah. for Sensible Drug Policy. Their links are below. Follow Izzy on Twitter as well, his link is below. Support the artists and entrepreneurs that you believe in simulations, links are below, support us. Help us grow, Ooh. help us prosper, please. Ooh. We would love to help you with your help greatly. And go and build the future, everyone. Manifest your dreams into the world. Let's update this code together. I love you very much. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you soon. Peace.